The troglodyte nature of the Great War, where men lived in trenches across vast swathes of northern Europe, was one of the unique aspects of that conflict of 1914-18. What was trench warfare? And what survives of it today? As we begin to move the podcast forwards into new directions, particularly as the ability to travel to the battlefields of the Great War begins once more, which I hope it will, either late summer or into early autumn of this year, and we'll be able to record episodes on the ground itself. I want to expand the range of things that we do. The podcast is about the battlefields of the Great War, about that old front line, but it's also about the history of it too. And I want to have some more episodes where we focus on that history and aspects of it. In particular, I know that a large number of people who work in education listen to the podcast and they like to have useful chunks of it that they can use with their students to understand the wider aspects of First World War history. So we'll begin that this week with a look at First World War trench warfare on the Western Front, largely from a British and Commonwealth perspective, but we'll touch on obviously other aspects of it in particular, the difference with the German approach to trench warfare on their side of the battlefield. So lots of new ideas in the pipeline for the podcast. One of those for those of you who are very kind to support the podcast via Patreon and buy me a coffee is I'm going to be doing a free online talk. I sent a message around to all of you recently, which I hope you've got, but I thought I'd put it in here just to pick up those of you who hadn't seen that message. Keep an eye on your messages there because I'll be sending you a link so you can come and join that talk, which will be later on this month. This is one of the ways I intend to take the podcast forward in the coming months and years. Not to have episodes of the podcast hidden away. The podcast will always be free. Every episode will always be broadcast here and you'll be able to listen to it on your favourite podcast platform, whether that's Apple, Spotify, online via the podcast website or whichever you choose but I want to be able to produce as well I think some bonus material particularly visual bonus material videos going forward which I can use to say thank you to those of you who do step forward and support the podcast and I think that's a good thing to do and probably what we'll do is run those on there for a time so that those people will see it first and then eventually they'll be uploaded onto a YouTube channel and you'll be able to watch them further down the line but again We've got to get to that point where we can get back to the battlefields to do that. But that's in the future. This week we go back to the past and we return to the Western Front to look at trench warfare. One of the keys to understanding the Great War is that when we look at Europe on the eve of war in the summer of 1914, it's clear that almost every nation is prepared for war, just not the sort of war that the Great War would rapidly turn into. These nations were prepared for mobile wars, not necessarily wars of old, as is often believed, but certainly a war that was rapid and swift and involved cavalry and manoeuvre, not long periods of static warfare where both sides dug in. And obviously when we look at that early phase of the war on the Western Front with the German Schlieffen Plan, the invasion of France, 
part of it through Belgium, part of it across the border of Alsace-Lorraine into eastern France, heading towards Paris, stopped at the Battle of the Marne, and the manoeuvre period, even at that point, begins to come to an end because the Germans are pushed back from Paris, back over the Marne to the next river, the Aisne. And above the Aisne are the Aisne Heights, and the Germans pull back to those Aisne Heights, and they dig in. And it is here that some of the very first trenches on the Western Front are dug. Dug by the Germans, dug opposite them, of course, by the French, and also by the British. The British Expeditionary Force the BEF, the regular army, the old contemptibles, they dig trenches in this area above the Aisne River, close to villages like Chavon and Soupir, and that first inkling of what the war might turn into becomes apparent. But that static position along the Aisne doesn't last long because the Germans begin a new manoeuvre, and that is the race to the sea up in northern France and across the border in Belgium, in Flanders. And there in the first Battle of Ypres, and the fighting between La Basse and Armentier in northern France, we see mobile warfare again, but the British, the French, and what's left of the Belgian army are on the defensive in these battles and begin to use defensive tactics. So rather than have their men assemble above ground level, and engage the enemy. They utilise the terrain. There are agricultural drainage ditches which are used as impromptu firing positions. And when we look at some of the photographs from that period, we can see men of the BEF, we can see French soldiers, and we can see Belgians along the Issa River beginning to dig in to prepare firing positions. Now, whether you can call these trenches at this particular point is debatable because very few of them were connected up. When we look at the pre-First World War military engineering and field manuals, we see that British soldiers, and I would guess it would be the same with most European armies, were trained to dig firing positions. If we look at the design that the trenches eventually became, that is replicated in these pre-war manuals. So the actual trenches themselves weren't born out of the conditions on the Western Front, The idea of them was already there, but on the scale that they would become, that was what would be different. So in 1914, in these battles from Mons to the Aisne to the First Battle of Ypres and the conclusion of that mobile war, there were instances where trenches were dug, where positions were made. But at the end of that fighting of 1914, it was now clear that the mobile war was over. The whole concept of the German Schlieffen Plan, that rapid war in the West, we might even dare call it a blitzkrieg, a lightning war, was to knock France out of the conflict and concentrated on the enemy that Germany feared most, and that was Russia, Russia in the East. And the nightmare scenario for Germany was fighting the Russians in the East and simultaneously fighting France and her allies in the West. And at the end of 1914, having failed with the Schlieffen plan to reach Paris and knock France out via that method, and then with the race to the sea being stopped in Flanders and northern France, Germany was now facing that nightmare scenario of a war on two fronts. So on the Western Front, and the naming of the Western Front comes from Germany, it's a a name that was adopted essentially by both sides 
the Germans realise on this Western Front that the only way they can possibly succeed in this war, fighting here in the West and simultaneously in the East, is to dig in and dig deep. So both sides begin to dig in during this period, but the German philosophy, that is at the very heart of their war in the West. The idea is you construct trenches, you construct positions, you make them so formidable, you know that the Allies will attack you, that France will want to push you out of France, the Belgians will want to push you out of Belgium and whoever else has joined the fight, which by this stage, of course, is Great Britain and the Empire, will want to push you out of wherever you are. But if you make your defences so formidable, they will break against it like a wall, suffer catastrophic casualties and possibly sue for peace. So although Germany might not win a military victory on the Western Front, they might be able to end the fighting there, gain something for Germany, and then concentrate on that greater fear of Russia in the East. So this becomes the hypotheses really at the very heart of the Germans' approach to fighting on the Western Front in that early stage of the Great War. Now initially those early trenches were just continuations of the drainage ditches and the firing positions that had been made in those battles of 1914, whether that was in Flanders or whether that was down on the Aisne or indeed anywhere else where the two armies had come to a grinding halt. And if you look at the positions in late 1914 on into early 1915, there is this mass of German forces from Belgium right down to eastern France and facing them France, Great Britain, Belgium and eventually troops from both the empires of France and Britain. And this newly formed Western Front is about 450 miles long from the Belgian coast right down to near the Swiss border. But those early trenches, particularly the drainage ditches, were soon found wanting because they'd been dug in the late summer in the approach to early autumn. And as autumn moved into winter, drainage ditches had one purpose – to drain away water and they soon filled with water and some of the impromptu firing trenches filled with water as well. So the realities of living in ditches in a field soon became apparent and what you see during that period of 1914 into 1915 with the construction of the Western Front, the construction of the trench system is the realisation of this and the adaptation of positions based on what the terrain was like. We spoke in a previous podcast, and it's worth going back to that, with Peter Doyle, Professor Peter Doyle, about the geology of the Western Front. And that's an important aspect of understanding how and where different types of trench systems were dug. So at this point, we might ask ourselves, who dug in first? This is a question that often is asked. In fact, someone asked me it on Twitter just the other day. When you think of those two great armies meeting in the open fields of France or Flanders. Who was it who dug in first? Well, it's always amazing how quickly a soldier can dig in when he's under fire. The imperative to protect yourself to survive is a great one. And those improvised firing positions that we spoke about in those early battles were essentially dug simultaneously by both sides. So when that front stabilised and the whole network of trenches developed, it began in a gradual basis, the connecting up, as we've mentioned, of the firing positions and the drainage ditches and everything else. And then over the days and the weeks and the months that followed, that whole network developed. So it wasn't really a case of 
someone digging in and then someone else having to dig in opposite them, directly under their eyes, directly under their fire, it was a case that really this whole development of the static war began simultaneously. Now, while the German approach to the fighting in the West was to dig in and dig deep and let the Allies attack you, what did trench warfare mean for the course of the war in 1915? Well, the Allies, the British and the French, decided to take the fight to the enemy. They wanted to push the Germans out of the nations in which they found themselves defending, whether that was the home territory of France or for Britain, the bulk of their fronts was in Belgium, was in Flanders, although part of the army was in northern France between that town of Armentieres, Armentieres and the La Basse Canal. The British front at that particular point was only about 20, 30 miles long. So the bulk of the Western Front then was being held by the French. The French are one of the first to go underground with mining operations to dig underneath these prepared trenches and blow them up. This really replicated siege warfare of old. If you read about medieval sieges, it wasn't uncommon for someone to tunnel underneath the castle walls and try and blow them up. There were no castles now, but the trench system occupied by the German army was symbolic of castles of old, and the French used that analogy and used tunnelers to try and destroy it. But that was only something that at that stage could be achieved on a localised basis. The British began to attack the German positions. The first attacks by the British Army were in Flanders in December of 1914, near to the village of Wichata, Whitesheet, when British units attacked the German positions there. Not much preparation, not much artillery, just the spirits of the offensive, officers waving their swords and leading their men over the top into machine gun doom, really, at that particular point. And it was clear that that type of attack against prepared positions would only result in one thing, and that was heavy casualties. So the year 1915, with successive British attacks along the Western Front, from New Chapelle in March through to the battles of Albers Ridge and Festerbert and Gavinci, and then the fighting at the Battle of Luz in September of 1915, sees again and again the British attempt to understand this war and try and break this stalemate. Now in some battles such as New Chapelle there is some success but one of the things that hampers the British attacks and the British offensives of 1915 is the lack of artillery. Now it's not that they don't have the guns it's that they don't have the shells to put in those guns. There were problems with shell construction and the production levels of shells that were required but also there were strikes in the factories over conditions. And it wasn't until that was sorted out by the Ministry of Munitions that the required number of shells was finally delivered to the guns on the front line. And that really took until the Battle of Luz in the late part of 1915 for that to happen. And again, when we look at how the British chose to or tried to break the stalemate of trench warfare, it was using artillery. Because if an enemy is dug in, and you can't move him by attacking him, you need to use weapon systems that are remote, so weapon systems away from the battlefield, to fire munitions onto it. And artillery is a good example, but that's at the top level. So guns, heavy guns, field artillery. At the lower level, in the trenches themselves, you see it replicated there too, with the use of hand grenades, which the British Army did have some in stock on the outbreak of the war. They'd made 
a hand grenade for the Mexican army that was never delivered, and that was then sent to soldiers in the front line. But gradually, grenade design developed during that year of 1915 to the production of the number five grenade, which we know as the Mills hand grenade, which was first implemented in the Battle of Luz in late 1915. But before that, soldiers were making their own grenades, jam tin bombs, which were literally plum and apple jam tins packed with gun cotton explosive and a wick fuse which you lit and then you threw at the enemy. Now, that was okay when the enemy positions were quite close by. What if they were a couple of hundred yards away? So all sorts of weapons were constructed to try and throw these grenades, to throw these explosive devices at the enemy from catapult guns, which were really looking not dissimilar to the Roman ballistas, which would fire the object at the enemy from a catapult, through to wartime developed devices such as the spring gun, which was basically a big box of springs with an arm, and when you pulled that arm it tensed all the springs against a throwing arm, which then used the power of the springs to propel whatever you put in that throwing arm across the battlefield. In the French army there was battlefield recycling in this respect. They took discarded 77mm German shrapnel shells. So when a German shrapnel shell, just like any shrapnel shell, explodes, the end, the fuse pops off, the shrapnel balls come out of the inside, and you're left with a metal casing, a long metal casing. And the French took that, because it formed an impromptu barrel, really, placed it on a wooden block, put a little charge at the base of it, and used that to propel objects out of it towards the enemy. This then led to the development of trench mortars. Now mortars, again, was a, a medieval siege weapon that had been used to fire explosives onto castle walls or fixed positions. And you see the French deploying their various designs of crapouillot, uh, their trench mortars, firing quite substantial mortar rounds at enemy positions across the battlefield with some effectiveness. There's a memorial to the Crapuyo at La Faux on the Chemin des Dames or at the beginning of the Chemin des Dames. A big mortar bomb sitting there, imposing on the battlefield, looking over the ground where the fighting was in 1917. But it commemorates the use of these mortars almost from the very beginning of trench warfare. The British do the same. They have a, a wide variety of mortars to begin with, but the Stokes mortar becomes the main trench mortar used by the British Army. Developed by Sir Wilfrid Stokes, it was essentially a drain pipe that fired a bomb. And the bomb looked a little bit like a, a modern car exhaust in some ways, and when people see them on the battlefields today, they often wonder why car exhausts are lying there in the midst of the fields of the Somme or northern France when in fact they are mortar rounds. And the Stokes mortar worked with the bomb being dropped into the tube. There was a spike at the bottom and there was a propellant cartridge at the base of the mortar and wrapped round that was a propellant charge. So when the bomb slid down the tube, hit the spike, it ignited the cartridge, ignited the propellant charge and threw the bomb out of the tube and at the top of the bomb was a device very similar to a Mills hand grenade spoon, the arm that flicks off when you pull the pin out of the grenade and then it sets the detonator off. A similar spoon was on a Stokes mortar so when it came out the top of the tube the spoon was pushing against the side of the tube as it got to the top the spoon flew off and the timer began and 
crews would have to work out distance over time so they put the right amount of time in there to propel the round onto the target and it would explode and a well-trained crew of trench mortar men could get something like eight to ten bombs in the air before the first one landed on the target and what they would do is come along with these stokes mortars which were very portable set them up in a firing position there might have been a base specially constructed for them but very often they just set it up in a trench fire off their rounds pack up their equipment and go back to their billets. And this wasn't very popular with the infantry manning these trenches because by the time the trench mortar men had left, the Germans had reacted and fired their own trench mortars, their own artillery, onto those positions in retaliation. Stokes mortars were used at brigade level. There was a brigade trench mortar battery that was attached to the infantry battalions within that brigade. And that remained pretty constant from 1916 until the end of the war. There were heavier trench mortars, the two-inch toffee apple that was a big sphere with a stick on that was fired from a two-inch mortar and the sphere was full of explosive. The plum pudding was the other name for that one. And there was also the six-inch Newton bomb trench mortar weapon and the 9.45-inch heavy trench mortar used by the British known as the flying pig. Now, these three types of medium and heavy trench mortar were manned by men from the artillery, not from the infantry. Trench mortar batteries were drawn from infantry personnel. Medium and heavy trench mortar batteries, which were at divisional level, they were divisional assets, so they were weapons that could be allocated to any part of the battlefield where that formation was fighting. They were manned by artillerymen. On the German side, we see a whole array of trench mortars being used by them. They had mortars from the very beginning of the war, the famous Mini that you often hear described in British accounts of the war, Here Comes a Mini, is a Minenwerfer, a German trench mortar, a larger calibre one, a heavy one. There were smaller Minenwerfers as well that fired a smaller high-explosive shell. And there was the Granatenwerfer that fired a segmented bomb which had fins on the back. And that was used at company level by soldiers to fire mortar-like rounds at short range over the battlefield and was quite effective. You often, again, come across these as you walk the ground. Obviously, today, all of these things, unexploded munitions, should not be touched under any circumstances. But this whole array of trench mortars, again, indicates the sophisticated nature of how trench warfare had developed. So 1915, as the Allies tried to break the stranglehold of German trench warfare on the Western Front sees a period of improvisation, adaptation and increasingly a whole change in military ethos in understanding that the mobile war is essentially over completely and this war will not become mobile again until you break the static nature of trench warfare. So as 1915 comes to an end, the offensives have cost the British and the French dearly. The French alone lost a quarter of a million men in the battles of Artois in northern France, the fighting at Notre-Dame-de-Lorette, Carency and Vimy Ridge, Hill 145 as they called it. The British army had thrown unit after unit against German positions and the whole character of the British army, the British Expeditionary Force on the Western Front, had changed as a consequence of the losses sustained in those battles. So the regular army had almost gone, replaced by territorials, replaced by the arrival of empire troops, whether they be from India, Canada or otherwise. And then gradually in 1915, we see the arrival of the new army from Britain, Kitchener's army, the volunteers of 1914, considered by then to be trained enough 
to be used on the battlefields, and the Battle of Luz becomes their bloody entry into the war on the Western Front. But as 1915 comes to an end, and with the failure of these offensives, there's a change of command in the British Expeditionary Force. Sir John French, the original commander, is replaced by Sir Douglas Haig, and he becomes the commander-in-chief for the remainder of the war. And at the same time, the British, with its army expanding, now takes over a longer part of the Western Front, extending it beyond the area of the Labasse Canal and Luz, down into the sector around Arras, and eventually around the northern part of the Somme battlefield, north of the River Somme, to a point where our lines joined with the French army. And although great battles were approaching the following year, 1916 would be a classic year of trench warfare. The year 1916 was in many respects the peak of trench warfare, This was a period of what we could describe as classic trench warfare, when after nearly two years, the whole infrastructure of the battlefield was now incredibly complex. Each side had both defined and refined their approach to constructing their defences along this western front. And what were the make-up of trenches by this stage of the war? Well, there was a classic approach to it on both sides of the battlefield, There were essentially three main lines of defence, a front line, a support line and a reserve line. And this defence in depth was done pretty early on but gradually expanded upon because it was realised if you just dug one line of trenches and they were captured by the enemy, you'd have no trenches to make a counter-attack from. So one position after another was there just in case that line fell. So if the front line was taken in an attack, you could use your support line to launch attacks across the ground or through the connecting trenches that you had, communication trenches that linked up one line with another. You could use those to retake your positions. Frontline trenches, support line trenches and even reserve line trenches were generally dug in a zigzag, a crenellation pattern. And this, again, when we look at pre-war engineering manuals, this approach to digging a trench was already there. And it was done for two reasons. To minimise casualties, it would be much easier to dig a straight trench, but if a shell exploded in it, the blast would go straight down that trench and kill or wound everybody in it. And it also helped you if the enemy got into your trench, because you could use the zigs and the zags and the crenellation of the trench to launch counter-attacks against enemy forces who had got into your positions. So you could hide behind one turn in the trench to throw grenades over it, for example, into the next position to try and evict the enemy and retake your line. So that zigzag pattern, that's the reason behind it. Now, there are plenty of examples of straight dug trenches. Gradually, you see those disappear. Some remains in sectors that were not particularly active, but generally speaking, it was realised just how dangerous a straight trench was and they were effectively abandoned. Communication trenches, which I've mentioned, were the other most common type of trench. They were trenches that connected up one line with another. If you didn't dig them, your men would have to go up over open ground to get from the reserve line to support line or the support line to the front line. So communication trenches were vital in moving your men up. In some locations where the enemy dominated the position that you were in, looked down on it, the communication trenches became communication tunnels. 
dug by engineers on the British side and it enabled men to move safely underground from one line of trenches to another. Communication trenches and tunnels were not positions that were occupied at all times. They were simply a means to get from A to B. So men didn't live in them, they lived in the main lines of trenches. And when you ask men to live in what are essentially open ditches, they are very susceptible to the weather. So when it rains or it snows, men will get wet or freezing. So they need to have shelters. And the men didn't wait for the army to tell them to do this. They did it themselves. So if you look at some of the early trenches, they just dug a little scrape in the side of the trench and they lived in there. Gradually, this got more and more sophisticated. And these shell scrapes, or funk holes as British soldiers called them, were dug and expanded upon. They had elephant iron, wobbly tin to support them, plus timber. But also, there was the construction of dugouts. And these were places where men could safely live underground, away from shell fire, as gas became a weapon that was used almost every day by 1916 in some sectors. Then they would be gas-proofed with blankets saturated in chemicals to stop the gas from getting in. And dugouts became an important part of a soldier's experience in the trenches of the Great War. And aside from these key features of fighting trenches, communication trenches, dugouts and shelters, there were lots of special positions within the makeup of a trench system. And this went from facilities to go to the toilet. Men had to go to the toilet when they were in the line. They couldn't just go to the toilet in their own trenches because disease would spread very, very quickly indeed with a huge amount of human feces everywhere. So separate saps, little trenches dug away from the main line where there would be toilets in there. Now these were not luxury toilets. They were very often a small shell hole connected up to the trench where there would be a plank or a pole across it and men would go to the toilet there but flies would gather around an open toilet and when a soldier went in there to go to the loo the flies would disperse and a keen-eyed German could notice this realize there was someone in that position and bring down trench mortar fire artillery fire whatever and there were men killed on the toilet so eventually this became more sophisticated with self-closing lid toilets where when you went in there did your business even if you forgot to shut the lid it would come down automatically and it would reduce the build-up of flies and stop this from happening stop the flies indicating that someone was in that position there were also separate bays or positions for specialist weapons as the war went on so machine gun positions trench mortar positions special positions for the trench catapults that we mentioned or the spring guns or the other types of paraphernalia that the army used to fire projectiles across the battlefield there were sniping positions built there were saps dug forward from the trenches which were observation posts where you could put sentries to keep an eye on the enemy positions and the artillery, forward observation teams from the artillery, dug their own observation posts where they could survey the battlefield with fixed telecommunications, relaying back to their battery sites, usually by telephone line, where they could more accurately direct the fall of artillery fire. So by 1916, and this is only a, a tiny insight into the different types of trench positions there were, the whole battlefield had become incredibly complex. For the men in the trenches by this stage of the war, they would do regular stints in the front line, rather than just arrive, as probably many people believe, 
arrive and just stay there until you were dead or wounded or the war was over. What happened was they tried that essentially in 1915. The 2nd Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, became one of the battalions of the British Army that had the record period of trench warfare service, something like 85 consecutive days in the front line, and it was worn out, totally worn out at the end of it. And the army realised that you couldn't subject men to that length of period on a frontline position. So they rotated men. You typically did seven to ten days on the battlefield, not seven to ten days directly in the front line. Uh, Your battalion would break that down with your company. Battalion has four companies, normally A, B, C and D. A company would do a few days in the front line and then move back to the support line and then back to the reserve line and then back to a position close by and the other companies would be rotated through those same positions. So what that meant was you as an individual soldier would not always be directly facing the enemy. And after a period of those seven to ten days in the front line, you'd come out, stay in a village close by for a few days, and then go back up and repeat that again. And you'd do that again and again and again, perhaps over a couple of months, and then you'd be pulled out of the line, sent to a place much further back, tens of miles from the front, perhaps right up close to the French coast, and you'd have a period of rest there before you returned to the battlefield area and began the process all over again. Now, by this 1916 period of classic trench warfare, what were the differences between British and German trenches? And those differences really reflect that philosophy that went right back to the beginning of the war. The Germans had dug in, dug deep, and they were there to stay. It was a permanent position for them until they could end the war in Germany's favour. For the Allies, there was always the prospect of attack. So it wasn't necessary to dig big and elaborate trench systems because you were always going to be attacking, always moving on. And your men might get too comfortable, too used to staying in those ditches that protected them, and you didn't want that. And when you look at wartime images of both sets of trenches, and I'll put some examples onto the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk, you can see this quite apparent. The German positions are elaborate and well-constructed, and the Allied ones are less so. And I've seen this myself in observing archaeology on the battlefields. The superb First World War archaeologist Simon Verdigam did a massive dig at Messines in 2012 where they covered a huge area of battlefield there. And I saw just how complex and how varied the German positions were. From early war German trenches like Blauergraben, we could see the basic design of trench. And as the war evolved... And Simon and his team began to explore the different lines of trenches. We could see how elaborate the German positions were, how in-depth their defences were, and how well-constructed their dugouts and positions and tunnels were on that part of the battlefield. And at Bozinger, some years before that, I'd seen the diggers unearth some of the British trenches there, and they were well-constructed, but they were nothing like, nothing as elaborate as what you'd expect to see on the other side of No Man's Land in the German lines. When you were in the trench, what did it look like? What did you see? Well, running at your feet were duckboards. Both sides used these, and underneath those duckboards was a drainage system to drain away the weather, the rain, and to drain away the water in conditions that got flooded. And the duckboards were walkways built on top of that to enable men to safely walk and not have to walk in the water or the mud or anything else. There were occasions, of course, in which the weather was so bad or the flooding was so bad that the water came up above the duckboard level. I remember on the dig at Bozinger, 
When the trenches got nearer to the canal, the number of duckboards piled up on top of each other to lift the men out of that water got more and more to where there was like six or seven of them by the time they got to the edge of the canal itself. But these duckboards were wooden. The British ones were slatted walkways, built, constructed by engineers behind the lines and then brought up by the infantry and put in place by them. Work on these was pretty much continuous because they would get damaged by footfall and they would get damaged by shell fire and everything else. So they were forever being worked on. In the British trenches, soldiers were required to keep that part of the trench clean so that the drainage area beneath the duckboards didn't fill up with rubbish and become unusable. So they weren't allowed to stuff their used cigarettes down there or discarded tins of bully or plum and apple jam. And there was regular inspections of this to make sure that these were in good condition. So that was the floor. The sides of the trench could be bare earth, particularly in the early period of the war. But of course, earth moves, particularly with the concussion of artillery fire. So they were shored up with varying types of material. Wood scrounged from demolished buildings in villages behind the lines. And as the war went on and the trenches became very much a feature of the landscape, then prepared material was brought up planking that was used to shore up the trenches elephant iron that could be used the wobbly tin that could be used for the same purpose meshing material if you look at contemporary photographs you see a number of different ways in which the sides of the trenches were shored up on the german side and i've seen this in archaeology on the battlefields they use a sort of a watland daub type thing where they would use weave together branches to be the supports on the side of the trenches and you particularly see this in Flanders. A layer of sandbags could be placed against the side of these reinforced trenches to give it further protection. Again you see this in quite a few photographs of the period and when we speak about sandbags there's not sand in them they just use whatever earth was available. Sandbags were quite big and one man would hold the sandbag open, another would use a shovel, he wouldn't use his entrenching tool, that wasn't the right bit of kit for it, they'd use a shovel to shovel earth in, seal it up and then put the sandbag in place. And if you raised your eye level up a little bit in the trench, both sides of it were also supported by sandbags. The front of the trench was called the parapet and the back of the trench was called the parados. And the sandbags on the parados would give further protection to the men within the trench and the parapet was the position in which they got onto to fire at the enemy in case of an enemy attack. Now this was higher than the top of their head. How did they get up there? That's where a so-called firing step comes into place. The firing step was just that, a step up to be able to look over the top of the parapet and fire your weapon, whether it was a rifle, a machine gun or whatever. And generally it would be earth with sandbags or just sandbags or sometimes a timber frame around it with earth in there. There were lots of different designs. And again, with archaeology of the battlefields, we see how useful that archaeology is in telling us the different ways in which different units and different sides of the battlefield approach their construction of trenches like this and as simple as things as what type of firing step that they had. Beyond the parapet was the belts of barbed wire. In the early stage of the war, this would just be wooden stakes with wire around it. The British also favoured what were called knife rests, which was two cross pieces of wood with a beam between them in which wire was wound round that. And they were a little bit more mobile, so you could create lanes, kill zones or ways out of the your own barbed wire into no man's land. 
but that could easily be tossed around by artillery fire. So gradually, both sides began to use barbed wire pickets. The other issue with wooden stakes is that you had to stand in no man's land in full view of the enemy, obviously at night, but nevertheless you had to stand there with a wooden mallet and hammer a wooden stake in. And even if you wrap that mallet in a sandbag and put a sandbag over the top of the wooden stake, there still would be noise, and that noise would attract the attention of the enemy and attract fire in your direction. So both sides use these barbed wire pickets that have a corkscrew bottom, so you can use, for example, an entrenching tool handle to go through one of the loops in the barbed wire picket and turn it, corkscrew it into the ground, and it makes no noise when you put it in, and you can just wrap your wire around it. Both sides use these. German ones very often have a spike on the top, so if you, I guess, tangled yourself up in the wire, you'd impale yourself on the spike. But this was a standard type of design of kit used to hang the wire on for most of the First World War. What did men do when they were in these trenches? Well, for a big chunk of the time when it was static, not a lot. They would stand to twice a day, in the morning at dawn and in the evening at dusk. Dawn and dusk was the typical period in which traditionally an enemy would attack in the half-light of dawn and in the half-light of dusk. So men would get onto the fire step and be ready just in case an enemy attack was coming. In the early period of the war you read about what was called the Mad Minute in British accounts of the fighting. This would be in the morning stand to when they'd get up onto the fire step and blaze away with everything that they had in the direction of the enemy. Now, the Germans weren't stupid. This was happening pretty much at a regular time every day. So they weren't standing there waiting to get hit. They took cover. So blazing away with all this ammunition was doing nothing. It just expending your ammunition. So eventually that approach was stopped. Men still stood too, both in the morning and in the evening, but they didn't blaze away with their rifles and their machine guns. During the daylight hours, because of the risk of observation and being seen by the enemy, you didn't really do a lot in the trenches. You might be forced to do a bit of work. You might be forced to work on the duck boards, for example, or down in your dugout or in your shelters. But generally, during the day, there wasn't a lot to do because it was too risky and you sat around and it was pretty boring, a word that we probably don't associate with the First World War, but that was the reality of it. Men sat on the fire step, played cards, played two up, played crown and anchor, all the different games that soldiers played, some of which were greatly frowned upon by the army. They also wrote letters to home. They received letters. The post corporal would come up with the Daily Post. The provision of posts moved rapidly across the channel to and from the Western Front, and it was considered a vital part of the morale of the soldiers on the battlefield. So the provision of letters coming two men in the front line and then being able to contact people back home from the front line was an important part of that. Millions of letters went backwards and forwards over the course of those four years. Rations were distributed on a regular basis and probably food in the Great War is an episode in its own right. British rations tended to be monotonous but continuous. German rations were often better but as the war went on and the submarine blockade took its hold on Germany the ability to supply their men with all these wonderful things gradually ran out and they were eating bread made out of sawdust, drinking coffee made from ground acorns and very few of them had seen any real meat for quite some time. Nighttime in the trenches was when this whole troglodyte world suddenly came alive because you could use the cover of darkness to do things, work more properly on your trench positions, go out into no man's land and repair your wire, and also, at night, you could use the cover of darkness 
to actively patrol no man's land to keep an eye on the enemy, if not raid their trenches. Now, they didn't raid their trenches every night or even every week. It was often done for specific purposes. If you noticed that a new unit was coming into the German trenches, then you'd send a party over to try and find out what that unit was. And occasionally, some British units on arrival in a new position, part of their policy was to immediately raid the German positions to see who was there and see what their defences were like. So that sort of activity went on. And again, trench raiding is perhaps deserved of an episode to itself. But in these day-to-day activities of trench warfare, it was continuous, it was monotonous, it was much more about labouring than fighting. There must have been men who went to eat, for example, in that long period of trench warfare there from mid-1915 to mid-1917, who went into the trenches and were killed or wounded after only a few months there, who never ever had an opportunity to fire their weapon in the direction of the enemy. And of course, firing your weapon, shooting your rifle, blazing away with your machine gun in the direction of the enemy is all part of the masculinity connected to military service. And if you've never had an opportunity to do that, how would you as a wounded survivor have been sent home, and that's the end of your experience of trench warfare, how would you have felt, how would that have affected you in later life? And these are perhaps aspects that we don't always consider. So 1916 was that classic period of trench warfare. There were, of course, big battles like Verdun and the Battle of the Somme, which again tried to break it. But really, the end of trench warfare would only come the following year, with the beginning of the offensives of 1917 on into 1918. The year 1917 was the beginning of the end of trench warfare, This was a period in which the offensives, in particular the British offences of that year, broke the stranglehold of trench warfare. And although it didn't end that year, it saw the beginning of its end. And we see this classically, for example, with the Battle of Messines in June 1917. That static position of the Messines Ridge, which the Germans had occupied since 1914, and classically dug in and dug deep, was ruptured by the explosion of 19 mines. Tunnelers, Royal Engineers who worked beneath the battlefield were the classic outcome as well of this static period of trench warfare, digging their tunnels, laying their charges. This was their finest hour at Messines in June of 1917, but in many respects their final hour because the war was never that static again that you could employ tunnelers, miners under the battlefield on that scale. So 1917 changes the war, really. And as we move into 1918, the British Army changes again. By this stage, the vast bulk of its troops are conscripts. The volunteers have been sacrificed at battles like Luz and on the Somme in 1916. And now they've been replaced by wartime conscripts. And also, those conscripts after the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917, the reinforcements have been held back. So in February 1918... The British Army reduces its strength effectively on the Western Front, but finds itself holding an extended part of the line. Now, beyond the River Somme, down to near the city of Saint-Quentin, facing the Hindenburg Line, that's where our lines joined with the French Army. And we were now holding well over 100 miles of the Western Front. We adapted our defences from digging even more lines in depth and creating redoubts, defensive positions, mirroring in many respects what the Germans had done on some parts of their battlefield 
which would be put to the tests in the battles of the spring of 1918, with the German breakout on the Somme in March when they broke through these lines of defence. Very often the redoubts, the defensive positions held, often while positions around them collapsed, but they were eventually forced to surrender because they didn't have enough stockpiles of ammunition in them and the guns would blaze all day and the men would fight but they'd run out of ammunition, they'd run out of bombs and the position became untenable. So that battle in March 1918, moving on into the second German attack in Flanders with what we call the Battle of the Lys in April 1918 and then the attack on the Chemin de Dame in May and the fighting in the Marne and around Paris in June and July of 1918 sees the war again and again and again become more and more mobile reaching an impasse, a moment of pause where the German army shot its bolt, the Allies are gathering for a counter-offensive, and in the late summer of 1918, that counter-offensive begins with a breakout on the Somme on the 8th of August 1918, the Black Day of the German army, when British, Canadian, Australian and French troops rupture the German defences on the Somme, and this signals the beginning of the end of the war, the last 100 days leading up to the armistice in November 1918. While static trenches still existed during this period, and there were parts of the line where the front remained static for quite some months before the Germans were eventually pushed back, the trenches, and you see this in the photographs of the period, become very, very shallow indeed. They're no longer the big, deep positions that we see in the classic period of 1916. They're just shallow firing positions dug on the landscape. And as the offensives of 1918 take the Allies back across ground, pulverised by the battles of the previous years, while there are trenches still there, gradually they move to a point where they reach the last line of trenches. And in early October 1918, for example, on the British front, the beaurevoir fonsom line is broken. Beyond that, it's essentially open ground. And in those last few weeks of the war trench warfare has gone. When the war ended at Mons on the 11th of November 1918, both sides didn't come up out of their trenches and wave and the war was over. It was a mobile war. It was a war that had taken these men out of the ditches in fields, into woods, into villages, into lanes, across canals. It was fighting that we'd much more recognise from the experience of the British soldier in 1944-45 in the Second World War. And by the time they got to Mons, it was urban warfare where they were advancing through the streets of Mons. The last British and Commonwealth casualty was not killed in a trench. George Lawrence Price, a Canadian soldier, a conscript, was killed standing in a street talking to Belgian civilians. It was a very different type of war. And that final phase turned the whole war full circle and much more mirrored the type of war that everyone thought that they would fight right at the very beginning in 1914. The whole experience of trench warfare and the memory of life and death in the trenches would be something that we would forever associate with the Great War. Trenches were not unique to that conflict. You can find mention of them in Roman military history. But stop someone in the street today and say the trenches and they'll immediately think of the Somme or Flanders. So what survives of trench warfare more than a century later.
When the war came to an end in 1918, the shattered remains of 450 miles of the Western Front were still there on the landscape, much of it already overgrown as the fighting had moved on. Civilians began to return in that early part of 1919 and the land was gradually reclaimed. The craters and the trenches and the positions were filled in. Those trenches which had so characterised the war disappeared, leaving ghostly shapes on chalk landscape, but nevertheless they existed no longer. But with an end of the war began a new period of the history of this ground, a period of pilgrimage, of tourism, and one thing that people wanted to see were trenches. How did they live, they asked. How did men survive in these trenches? They wanted to see them, and in certain areas they were preserved, and some of them are still there today. The trenches of death at Dixmude, dug along the Isar Canal by Belgian soldiers, give us a classic insight into what life was like when only a canal separated you from the enemy. The trenches there were preserved in concrete. The sandbags were concrete, something that was done in several parts of the front. And while in the early 80s, when I first visited those trenches, they were part of a private museum, they are now run and maintained by the Belgian army and are still open with a visitor centre that explains the history of the site. At Sanctuary Wood, the last of the original trench museums, here a set of original trenches were just left and a museum constructed around them. And while many people doubt these trenches are original, I'd refer you back to a previous episode of the podcast on this, they are, and they give us a good insight into what the British experience of trench warfare was like. There are now reconstructed trench systems too. At Hoog, the Hoog Crater Museum, highly recommended, there's a small section of both British and German trenches reconstructed in that classic 1916 style there. At Zonnebeek, there's a much bigger system of reconstructed trenches using experimental archaeology. And you've got a, a progression there from early war German trenches into later war ones that were found during archaeology in Flanders. And they've based the design of these reconstructed trenches on those into a typical 1916 period British firing trench with the typical quite exact zigzag pattern, the crenellation pattern. Down in France at Vimy Ridge with the creation of the Canadian Memorial Park leading up to the construction of the Vimy Memorial, a section of trench system there was preserved with British Canadian lines around the mine craters on one side and the German positions on the other side. And again, very similar to Dixmuder with the trenches of death, the trenches were preserved in concrete there. So concrete sandbags, concrete duckboards, concrete firing steps. And there's quite a good recording of a veteran visiting those in the 1980s, which I'll put as a podcast extra on the podcast website, so you can hear what his thoughts were visiting those trenches in the 1980s. Down on the Somme is the Newfoundland Memorial Park, a whole section of battlefield purchased by Newfoundland after the war and left in its wartime state. And on the British sector of the Western Front, this is probably the most important location to visit to understand trench warfare, because you just don't have an isolated trench here, you have a whole battlefield. So on the British Newfoundland side, you have the three lines of trenches, the reserve line, the support line, the front line. You have the communication trenches that connect them up. 
you have no man's land, and then you have the German positions beyond. And this snapshot, really, of a section of the Western Front gives us a massive amount of insight into what the whole aspect of trench warfare was like along those 450 miles. But once we get beyond the Somme, down into the French sector, that part of the Western Front that sees not that many English-speaking visitors, that's where we really begin to discover what remains of the trench war of World War One. In a typical wood, in sectors beyond the Somme, you can find more trenches than are preserved and are visitable on any part of the British sector of the Western Front. Now, some of these areas of woodland are national forests, like at Verdun. Others are private land and obviously need to be respected. But nevertheless, exploring that part of the Western Front perhaps gives you an even greater insight with reproduction trenches like those at the Mandama Siege, but original ones like at Lalonge, right down on the far end of the Western Front in the Vosges. And I think here, beyond the British sector of the Western Front, in that bulk of the old battlefields, that we can see the sheer enormity of the trench warfare that existed during the Great War, the sheer scale of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.